On February 15th in 1921, Dr. Evan Kane performed a surgery. At that point, the standard practice for surgery was general anesthesia. He really believed that this particular surgery could be done with local anesthesia. He had already done 4,000 apodectomies. He wanted to do one with local anesthesia. But he had to find someone who would be willing to do it, to prove his point that this was a safer way of doing it. He eventually did find someone, and on February 15th, 1921, Dr. Kane performed, using local anesthesia, an apodectomy on himself. Using pillows and mirrors and having his brother, who was also a surgeon in the room, as well as some nurses with him, he gave himself the shot, opened himself up, he did all the surgery, and once he got it out, he then had his brother close him up, but he did the surgery on himself. On himself. That is putting your money where your mouth is. That's believing and sincerely committing to what you think is true. And this morning, I want to talk about commitment. Now, primarily, I want to talk about Christ's commitment. And yet, it then asks a question, what are you and I committed to? Because you're committed to something. You put your money where your mouth is in some way in your life. It may not be where you think it is or where you want it to be, but I want to look at, as we look at this passage in Luke, what Jesus was committed to and what that might mean for us. Go ahead and open your Bible, if you would, to Luke chapter 9. It's on page 1478. Luke chapter 9, page 1478. And as we go into this passage together, in Luke 9, would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, please open up our hearts to receive this morning. By the power of your Spirit, we pray that we would hear your word in a very profound way, and it might change us to be more like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 51. I'm going to walk through the passage briefly and explain it, and then make a few points. Verse 51, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. There's a particular time that was in place, established by the Father, that he would head for Jerusalem. And and this is the one-way trip. This is the ending of his ministry. He's going to go, and what he's been saying to his disciples, where he will be betrayed and suffered, and he will die, that's what he's heading towards. So he sets his, literally in Greek, he sets his face to Jerusalem. Verse 52, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready. There's two reasons this is happening. Number one, it's a Samaritan village. 
So the Samaritans were considered by the Jews in the first century to be half-breeds. In 721, Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, and they took most of them into slavery. However, the ones that were left intermingled with Assyrians and formed the Samaritans. So the Jews considered them half-breeds. Jews and Samaritans did not like one another, to the point that if you were in Galilee and you want to walk to Jerusalem, which you would do a couple of times a year because of the festivals, it's a three- to four-day journey. If you go through Samaria, they hated the Samaritans so much and thought they were so unclean that many of them would make the extra journey to go around Samaria to get to Jerusalem. So Jesus is sending people ahead of time, messengers, because normally Samaritans would not accept Jews. Not only that, villages, maybe no more than 10 to 15, 20 homes, it's not a lot of people. Jesus has at least 12 adult males with him, plus women are traveling with him, and others at times just kind of latch on. He could be bringing 20 people into a village of 20. So he sends people ahead to say, hey, we're coming. Will you accept us? Verse 53, but the people there did not welcome him. Not totally surprising. It's a bunch of Jews coming into a Samaritan village wanting to eat all their food. And at the same time, hospitality was a huge virtue. You did not want to turn people away. But we get a reason. Luke says because he was heading for Jerusalem. The Samaritans rejected Jerusalem as the holy city. They rejected Mount Sinai as the holy mountain. They had Mount Gerizim. They even rejected the Old Testament and believed only in the first five books and in their version of it. So if these guys who are Jews are heading to the holy city of the Jews, we want nothing to do with them. Because they are wrong. They have the wrong God in the wrong place. So they don't welcome Jesus. Verse 50, when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? I kind of wish I could have been there to see Jesus' face in that moment. (laughs) I mean, that seems so out of the blue for everything else going on in his ministry. Like some people say, no, you can't stay with us. And James and John, should we destroy them with fire? Um, And yet, they might have in mind Elijah and the Baal prophets. Because these are people that are against God, the Samaritans, who are rejecting the Messiah. And they're like, well, we'll call down fire. And Jesus turned and, and this is, you need to kind of get this idea in your head because it paints a picture. In Greek, this first verb is a participle. It is better translated something like turning. It's not the primary verb. The primary verb is he rebuked them. And so this is on the image you get. It's like he is moving, he hears the message, and then from behind him, he hears them go, should we call down fire from heaven? And he's like ready to rebuke them. He's turning and he rebukes. Like it's not two separate things. It's like he's overwhelmed. He doesn't just go, no, don't do that. He rebukes them because this is not in line with the character of Christ. 
even if he's rejected by the Samaritans. Then he and his disciples went to another village. That's the story. Here's my first point. Jesus shows us what real and complete commitment looks like. Verse 51, it's a pivot point in Luke's gospel. So from this point on, he's moving towards Jerusalem. Now, he takes a real roundabout way of doing it. If you read the rest of Luke's gospel, you'll see that he goes all over the place. But he's heading towards Jerusalem, which means this. He is heading to confront the religious leaders. He is heading to confront Rome. He is heading to be betrayed by his own. He is heading to suffer and be mocked and ultimately have nails driven through his wrists and his ankles where he will be hung naked on a cross until he suffocates and dies. And he's known this for a while. Let me ask you, when you know ahead of time something bad is going to happen, how does it impact your thinking? So, on Thursday of this week, my wife got her teeth cleaned, and on Friday, I got my teeth cleaned. It's the first time with a new dentist. Back in Texas, we had a dentist who was very good. He was careful, he was gentle, and he did a great job. But my wife came home and she said, I just want to warn you, it was not gentle. It was a little bit like a rusty ice pick being used on my gums. Guess what I thought about for the rest of the day? Guess what I thought about when I woke up that morning? Guess what I thought about while I was in the waiting room, waiting to go in? And guess what I thought about when I was in the chair and the lady pulled out the rusty ice pick and she said, open wide. You can imagine what I thought about for like 24 hours. Oh my gosh. And you know what? Just, just so you understand, my wife is one of the toughest people I've ever met when it comes to physical pain. If that impacted her, <laughs> I can't tell you what it would have done to me. <laughs> but that was nothing compared to years of knowing you were going to have to confront the entire religious establishment. You were going to be rejected by people that you love and trust and left alone. Your best friend or one of them was going to publicly deny he even knew you while you were on trial for your life. You were going to go through such torment that you would sweat drops of blood wanting it not to happen. And yet, you resolutely set your mind to go do it. What kind of commitment does that take? That was the commitment of Jesus to the plan of the Father. That was Jesus' commitment to us and to this creation Total, 100%. Give everything. That is what commitment looks like. In 2016 in Baltimore, a lady named Erica walked out of her home 
walked down to her vehicle and was searching through to get something. She got whatever it is she was trying to find, and when she turned around, it was the horror of every parent. Her house was on fire. And whatever started it, whatever was in the home, it just went up. She immediately ran back to the house, looked for every possible way to get inside that house because her eight-month-old daughter, Vivian, was in the house. Afterwards, she had burn marks all over her hands, her face, because she was trying to get through various parts of this home to get in, and she couldn't. The fire department got there, got inside, and found the child. They also had a six-year-old dog named Polo. They found the dog over the top of the child, dead. The child had hardly any burn marks. They were able to revive her there at the scene, and she was good. And the fireman said to the lady, your child probably would not have made it if that dog didn't give his life for your baby. Complete, 100% commitment. That is what our Savior gave for us, for the world, to follow the will of the Father. And when I hear that, on one hand, I am so utterly encouraged. Do you understand? Jesus is never going to give up on you. He is so committed to you. Because that is the plan of God. And he was willing to give everything. And he knew it. He knew the cost. He actually told his own. What was going to happen before it happened? And yet, when the time came, as Luke said, when the time was approached, when the time was here, he said, I'm going. And nothing is going to stop me. That's his commitments. And I'm highly encouraged by that. And on the other hand, I think there is a challenge there for me. Maybe for all of us. What does commitment look like, and what are we committed to? And as we go through the rest of this passage, I want to say a couple of things to us, and I want us to think about this. Number one, when it comes to commitment, sincerity is not enough. It's good, but it's not enough. The Samaritans were absolutely sincere in their beliefs. They really did believe Mount Gerizim is the place to worship. They really did believe the Jews got it wrong. Jerusalem was not the holy city. They really did believe with all their heart that Jesus was going to the wrong place. So they did not welcome him. And yet, the disciples also really, really believed 
they should never have gone to Samaria in the first place. They were half-breeds. And how dare those half-breeds reject the Messiah who would come to them when they don't deserve it. Let us call down fire on them. And yes, they ask, but you get the impression that their hands are already up and they're ready to bring the fire down when they ask because they sincerely believe that they are right. Sincerity is not enough. And in fact, sincerity can do two things. One, it can make us arrogant. We can be so sincere that we are right that we don't listen to anybody else. And it blinds us. It can make us not even know the right questions to ask. It can make us not want to listen to anybody else because we just were so right. They thought they were so right. A couple of days ago, our Keurig went out. For the last couple of years, I have been making coffee almost every morning. I make some for me, and then I make some for my wife. My wife's is really easy because she uses a Keurig. I just put coffee pot in there, hit enter, and boom, it makes coffee. But it finally went out. So I got a new Keurig. I set it all up. It's beautiful because it's like three years newer than this one. And I went to put in the coffee filter. And it's this, like, stick, and it's got the coffee filter thing on right here, and you, you put it in, and it's just supposed to kind of screw in. And it's got a little circle on it, and you can see exactly where it goes. And I put it down there, and I, I'm turning it, and I can't, it won't latch. So I pull it out. I can see the little slits. I'm like, I know this has got to go in here. I feel myself pushing harder, and I'm like, I'm going to break this thing, which would be really bad because she can't have coffee if I break it. So I pull it out again, and I'm like, what in the world? So I went and grabbed my old Keurig. And I thought, well, how did it go in? Because it's the same thing. So I got my old Keurig. It goes right in and just stays. I'm like, all right, my Keurig must be broken. I pull out the instructions. Yes, it took me 30 minutes to pull the instructions out. I get the instructions out. They're no help. So I get online. This should have been my first clue that I'm not the only person that can't figure this out. I found no less than five videos demonstrating how to put the filter in. And I'm like, what the heck? This should not be so complicated. So I start watching the video, and here's something I noticed, and it just stood out to me for some reason. The lady helping me put my filter in, she was talking to me like I was in elementary school. Like I was a little kid who really should have known better. I could hear it in her tone. And so she holds up the filter, and then she goes, you just do this. And here's the first thing I noticed. I had my filter upside down the entire time. <laughs> and I don't mean for 30 minutes. I mean for the last three years. I've had my filter upside down. <laughs> the only reason it stayed in the other one is because the water reservoir was so narrow that you had to kind of push it in. The sides of the reservoir were holding the filter in, not because I had it in right. And as I'm looking at it, I'm like, well, duh. The whole filter part is at the top. As soon as you have one cup of water, the liquid is no longer in the filter. I should have noticed that like years ago. I was so convinced I had it right. I didn't even think to turn it upside down 
I didn't even think, well, like, the water's not even hitting the filter. Like, it's not doing any good. As soon as I turned it upside down, it clicked right into place. Sincerity. I sincerely believed I had this right, to the point I was going to break the dang thing. Sincerity, Sincerity is not enough. It can make us arrogant, and it can blind us as it did to them. But here's the flip side of that. Please hear this in all humility. No one in this room is always right. Not a single one of us is always right. And we all know that, and I even see some people shaking their heads. We all say it too. But I do wonder at times if our actions and our attitudes actually show it. So as we think of their response, here's the response the Samaritans should have had. It would not have been right for them to just roll over and go, hey, come on in, we'll just do whatever you want. That wouldn't have been right. You need conviction. But it also wasn't right to go, oh, you're going to Jerusalem? You're wrong. I want nothing to do with you. And sometimes I find myself, this is how I know when I say I don't think I'm always right, but I'm not always acting like it. I know it when I'm really not willing to listen to somebody else. I know it when I get my blood boiling and I just kind of unleash. I know it when I can't let something go and I still just, I am right, I am right. Them, here is what the response should have been. They should have let it come in and say, why do you even want to share with us? Like, we don't believe that Jerusalem is the right place, and here's why. Tell us why we should trust you. Tell us why we should listen. The disciples, they were the same way. They totally thought they were the right. Hands in the air, let's call down fire. Let's destroy these pagans. What should have happened is, Lord, why do you want to go to Samaria? Like, we think of them as half-breeds. Like, they don't have things right. Why would you want to go there? Can you help us understand Lord, they rejected you. Like, is that okay? Like, you shouldn't have that happen to you. What do you want us to do, Lord? Because if we are not open to seeking Christ in everything we are doing, we will be wrong at multiple points. And even when we're seeking him, at times we're going to be wrong because we'll get that wrong. And I want to say something right now. The only way to truly be right when it comes to relationships and decisions and everything else is to be fully following after Christ. And that has so often been co-opted by stuff going on in this passage and going on in our world today. The Samaritans religiously and politically think they are right. The Jews, religiously and politically, think they are right. Both sides claim they have God on their side. Today, we do the same thing. Both sides claim we have Jesus. No. Jesus stands with the Father and the Father alone. And all of us, no matter where you stand, religiously, politically, socially, 
We all need to have the humility to be coming to Christ and not thinking he's on my side. Because we, none of us, are always right. And I got to do something yesterday that was so awesome. I got to go see my boys in a musical for the first time. They've never done it before. It was awesome. It was incredible. I really wanted to go again, but I wanted to let my wife go again because there's only one more performance. But it was awesome. One of my sons had a solo and got to come out and sing. And he's 11, and he got to sing with this other little girl, and it was so adorable to watch the two of them sing a love song to each other. It was awesome. But here's something that I noticed about this musical. A few of those kids could sing pretty darn well. A few of those kids could dance pretty darn well. This is third to eighth graders. A few of those kids could act really well. Most of the microphones worked really well. But here's what I didn't see. There wasn't a single person on that stage that could act, dance, sing, and have their mic working right. Not one. And I was thinking about this message, and I thought, that is our world. That's what our world is like. There isn't a single one of us that can sing, act, dance, and has our microphone working right. All of us are screwed up. Plain and simple. And if we aren't willing to look to Christ and be challenged by him. So in the first century, people who actually listened to Christ, they were Jewish like Jesus was. They had the same Old Testament background. And yet, do you know how often he offended them and challenged them and made them go, what? So He comes onto the scene preaching the kingdom of God and saying he's bringing it. Do you know how bold that was? One of the first things that happens is he goes into a synagogue and he stands up and reads from the Old Testament. And then he says, that's being fulfilled in me. You know what they do? They try to throw him off a cliff. Later on, John the Baptist is in prison. John the Baptist. Do you remember he baptized Jesus? He's the one preaching. He's coming. He recognizes him because the Spirit comes down. And yet John the Baptist is in prison and he sends messengers to Jesus to ask him, are you sure you're the one? Because he's not doing what John thought should be done. And Jesus sends back and says, go tell him people are being healed. Go tell him demons are leaving people. Not, yes, I'm the one, but these are my actions. Do you know that he hung out with people that the religious leaders and most people at his time would have been like, what in the world are you doing? You can't be partying with prostitutes and tax collectors and known sinners. And yet he called those very people to follow him. He called one of them to be his disciple. He stands up at the Sermon on the Mount. And and just, do you know how radical this is? Moses was the teacher The Ten Commandments are the foundation of the Old Testament. And he stands up and he goes, you've heard it said. And then he quotes Moses. And then does this. 
but I say to you. And he begins to give his own spin on Moses? Jesus, over and over and over again, he challenged the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Herodians, the religious leaders, all the Romans. He challenged everybody. Is he not challenging us? Think about it. If you come to church every Sunday and you leave just feeling great about yourself, and you're like, oh, everything's wonderful. Jesus is on my side. Everything's good. I don't need to change anything. You're missing something. And it may be the preacher. (laughs) That could be your issue. But Jesus, in the most encouraging, loving, grace-filled way, who says, I will never give up on you, you should also hear him saying, you shouldn't be acting like that. You shouldn't be treating people like that. You are wrong when it comes to that position. We should be turning to him and he should be challenging us regularly because that's what he did to everybody around him. And I do not think 2,000 years later, somehow we got it all right finally. We need the Lord and we need to be coming to the Lord regularly. Jesus was 100% committed. He shows us commitment. He knows what lays ahead of him, and he goes through it anyway, no matter what it takes. And he does that because he's committed not to a particular religion or to a political party or to a social way of doing things or whatever else. He's committed to the Father, and that's it. And he did it for us. We know his commitment to us. Now, where are we going to go? Our sincerity isn't enough. And we are not always right. Can we embrace that? Really? And be willing to turn to Christ and look for what he wants in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus our friend, our Savior, and our Lord, the one who would take and give anything to fulfill your will and to save our souls, to bring us into eternity. Lord, help us to find encouragement in his commitment and to find an example and to begin on a regular basis in humility to turn to him to be willing to be challenged. We ask this in Jesus' holy name and for his honor and glory. Amen.